0: Xander, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, excited to, uh, to chat with you. Why
0: don't we start off with your background? Where did uh, you start off, sort of the arc of your career and educational background and where you are now?
1: Sure. Um, I first got interested in um, sort of working with political science data and, and relevant questions at, at the Sunlight Foundation, actually, um, as a researcher playing a lot with campaign finance data and lobbying records. Sunlight Foundation at the time was a transparency and accountability organization that um, sort of leveraged technology and open data. Um, and then I went to do a PhD, You know, learning at that point that if I wanted to keep doing that kind of research and maybe lead my own research projects, I'd have to get a PhD. Um, otherwise I'd always be working on somebody else's project. So I uh, went to the University of Michigan, did my PhD there. Um, And now I'm a research assistant professor at uh, the Center for Science of Science and Innovation at uh, the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, where I study, um, among other things, uh, sort of my my general research interests are um, sort of congressional staff, capacity, um, use of information, by Congress and and sort of use of information more generally, and and science in policy making enterprise, as well as interest group representation, lobbying, campaign finance, things of that nature.
0: So what took you to the sunlight in the beginning? You know, what sparked the interest in this area?
1: Um, I always, you know, I was a politically active kid uh, growing up, you know, volunteering on campaigns and things, and then in college. and in a master's degree, I learned that I love playing with data, that I liked coding, that I liked, um, you know, being able to sort of have an empirical question and do my best to try to answer it. Um, that, that feeling was satisfying about the end of a project. thing. I think I learned a thing about the world that maybe we didn't know before, um, you know, with appropriate confidence bounds, but so that, that kind of feeling um, I found rewarding. And so uh, I wanted to you know, be involved or politics policy adjacent, and I wanted to go to a place where there was data for me to work with. Um, I figured there was a decent chance I would do a PhD at some point later, um, as that was had been an interest of mine, but uh, wasn't sure exactly what area I wanted to work in. So when I went to Sunlight and found myself working with all of these political data sets um, and really enjoying it, um, that helped me make sort of the disciplinary choice uh, that I that I wanted to
0: did you start off more as an engineer or more as a policy person?
1: I was sort of an empirical social scientist. I'd done a master's degree in um, the social science of the internet. Um, But, uh, you know, that was where I learned Python and network analysis and things like that. But it it was always um, data analysis and coding in service of social science kinds of questions more than ever, um, for me, ever uh sort of product engineering or you know there are whole parts of a of a software engineering stack that i know nothing about it's really i just know about interfaces between databases data analysis tools and graphing libraries basically
0: great well you, you already mentioned kind of your broad areas of of, in, of research interest can you just talk a little bit about those and and what t- what took you to those particular um themes i think it was information it was uh you know, the interest groups, and, um, you know, please introduce those.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've always really been, yeah, I think there's a motivating question behind a lot of my work, and, and I think this is true for for many political scientists, right, but it's sort of who has say in um, in policy being, being made, right, who has sort of, who's represented, um, whose interests, what voices are heard, what perspectives are included, um, and, for whatever reason, the, the dynamic that always interested me the most was sort of intersections between elite policymakers and uh, those who had access to them or were able to sort of uh, influence them rather than kind of mass mass participation, mass voting, um, forms of accountability. Um, and what was really influential very early on um, for me was this paper by Rick Hall, Uh, who ended up becoming my dissertation co-chair at Michigan um, uh, titled Lobbying as Legislative Subsidy. Um, And that's a paper that talks about how really what lobbyists do more um, more than really like kind of changing people's minds or buying them off with campaign contributions, or instead of being sort of transactional or persuasive, a big part of it is about providing information to your potential allies interest groups provide information to their potential allies to make them more efficient working on those issues and shift their agendas so that they spend more time on those issues. They basically increase the budgetary constraint for an ally by giving them all these resources, saying, here, if you're going to work on my issue, here's a bunch of evidence to support you. Here are model bills, here are talking points, all of those kind of things. And thinking about that in the context of what I observed as just a sort of news consumer and, and someone interested in politics was the, the sort of explosion over the last 20 years of sort of the, the kind of machinery or apparatus of political information and policy information uh, production, um, you know, a generation dissemination, right? So, like just the growth of lots of of, of many think tanks. Um, some, rep- you know, some funded by various corporate interests, some with different ideological interests, just sort of spanning the gamut of. Right, there are many more sources now, where a, a legislator could conceivably receiving this be receiving this sort of legislative subsidy than there maybe were 40 years ago, when there are a handful of, you know, um, uh, uh, kind of flagship interest groups and and institutions. Um, and the implications of that really interested me and the implications rather than looking directly at you know we always see these like does do mon- does money really actually matter in politics kind of things from political scientists finding that like an individual campaign contribution maybe doesn't really do anything but there's all of this money being spent on producing all of this information that supports some positions and not others and how are those agendas set how um you know what's the kind of that apparatus all like and, and what ultimately um do then legislators end up relying on and why um, sort of and and my various research projects, then all I think look at that big central question in different ways. Right. So the staffing capacity part is about, you know, the lower capacity that it, that the institution has, the more they need to rely on external information because they don't have in house um, sort of rich expertise. Right. And so that's sort of what interested me in that or, you know, thinking about the distribution of interest groups that exists, you know, are they more conservative conservative or liberal? And how does that vary across issue or across industry is about who is out there to be potentially providing that kind of subsidy. And as that distribution changes, the sets of subsidies that may be available to legislators may change. Right. Or. um, questions of looking at actually how staffers make decisions over which information to rely on versus other information is about how you know individual staffers ideologies or their their own cognitive biases that you know we all have in how we process information. How that ends up structuring what information flows through the institution, so I think all of them are about this sort of macro question of how does the world of groups and information shape the way that the policymaking institution itself um sees the problem it needs to address and the potential the potential solutions to those problems
0: yeah i think it's interesting the way you frame it as a as a subsidy um and i think in one of your papers you talk about the concept of outsourcing uh and i think it's very uh appropriate to what actually happens um and and you know you think about congress's budget uh and you can't think of it as a as a self-contained thing when you have a whole industry that's Feeding information to Congress, Uh, you have to take that into account if you're thinking about the true spend on, on uh, legislative knowledge creation. Um, So why don't we jump into you know some of your your first work around or not first work but at least some of the one thrust of your work, which is around staff capacity of the institution. Can you talk about you know what what have you done in that area? What kind of questions were you setting out to answer, and what have you found in the process?
1: Yeah, um, so there are a couple of different approaches that I've taken with um various collaborators to looking at congressional staff and staff capacity. Um the two main uh thrusts are are one is sort of using was using um uh disbursements, disbursement records from the house uh to look at um payroll to staffers. Uh and particularly we this was with um Tim LaPira, Casey Burgett, and Jesse Crossin, And we, we categorized um, each staffer according to their responsibilities um, using congressional yellow books to basically figure out, is this a policy staffer or not? Do they have policy responsibilities? And then we can look at the share of total spending that individual members um, allocate to policy versus non-policy staff and how that's varied over time within the house. Um, and we basically found a, a sort of steady decline in spend on legislative staff in personal offices in the house. Um, and, you know, sort of contrary to um, the expectation, it does it does appear to happen sort of after the Gingrich revolution in 94, but the, the sort of conventional wisdom is that, was that we thought that, that you should see sort of that an asymmetric effect here, right? Republicans do this because they're following the, the contract with America kind of, Um, you know, spend time in the district, spend time getting reelected, leave legislating to leadership, um, marching orders, and that we wouldn't, and that you wouldn't necessarily see that um, among the Democrats. Uh, But we actually found sort of bipartisan divestment um, following 2004 in uh, personal policy staff, um, or personal office policy staff. so and 2004
0: found, was the key date
1: 90, 1994 94 okay um and uh you know that's as we look at that as share of the total money that um, members of congress could be spending on staff right we have their sort of total mem- members representational allowance um and and the share that they devote to policy staff decreased in both parties over time sort of a, a systematic um divestment in in these legislative staffers within the institution
0: so where does it sit now compared to the 94 inflection point
1: um it's substantially lower i can i'm pulling up um this chart here so legislative staff um in total by the 113th congress which as far as our our data go uh spending on legislative staff is a about a little under 20% of members' uh, representational allowances, on average, um, whereas in the 103rd Congress or 104th Congress, it was um, about 27%. Hmm. Um, for example, right? So you know, not huge, but that's almost a, that's almost 20 to 30% of um, of what they were spending, right? They've decreased um and we find it's particularly among um new members right like like older members who had been sort of uh uh you know used to the the institutional culture earlier on they stick around keeping these more legislative these legislative staffers a little bit longer but when new members come in uh freshman members they don't meet that same level of um legislative the legislative staff uh uh spending that maybe the members they were replacing were so sort of some level of decrease over time within member and also a replacement effect
0: so other than the the compensation or i'm assuming that also relates to the number of people that are in those capacities what other questions did you have about the staffing and any other surprises
1: yeah i mean we see similar kinds of things among years of experience and among numbers of staff we chose um to look at spending on staff uh, specifically as, as our focus, because you know it sort of can capture some degree of seniority and number, like having more costs more and having more senior ones cost more and sort of an overall a kind of way of, I mean, very classic kind of economist, like thinking like what you devote more money to is what you prioritize higher, right? Like it's a, a measure of, of relative prioritization. Um, but we do we do observe in these data um, similar kinds of things, you know, dec- decreases in numbers of staffers, um, full-time equivalent staffers or uh, years of experience. Right. Um, and and some colleagues, or some friends of mine have done related work, you know, showing that um, uh, this is Jesse Cross in uh, Jeff Lorenz, uh, Craig and Al, uh, Bolden and Wiseman. Um, that you're sort of these increased staff experience, staffers with, with increased experience make legislators more effective, right? So, experienced staffers matter. And actually, I was just recently, uh, actually earlier today, reading a, a working paper by Emily Cottle that that shows that it matters at the committee level, too. Having experienced senior staff in committees makes congressional committees more effective, which I thought was um, a really cool finding.
0: Well, yeah, that was my next question. Actually, did you just look at the personal office staff, or did you also dig into the committee staff and and the trends there?
1: For that paper, we just looked at personal office staff, um, in part because job titles in committees can be less informative. Lots of people's uh, titles are just professional member of committee staff, Um, and. so that, there's sort of some data quality issues in the source data that we were working with um, for committees, and so we looked, we have an appendix where we do talk about how staff counts in committees have not grown sufficiently to compensate for the divestment in individual offices right. Um, there has been some trade off between certainly in the relative power of individual offices and committees, but in terms of sort of head counts, we don't see like it's all being absorbed by committees and so. As an alternative explanation, we can imagine the capacity is all, all in the institution, but it's in the committees and not in um, not in the personal offices. There's just not enough growth in um, in committee staff. In fact, many committees have declined um, in total numbers of staff um, as well since uh, since 1994. And so, um, yeah, it's not enough to, it doesn't offset the the institutional decline in um, personal offices.
0: And so for the personal office change, do you think it, you know, the driving factor, you know, what are the driving factors of that? Is it that individual members really don't have as much say in legislation as they used to? as there's been centralized control and leadership? Or is it because, you know, they, they just want to get reelected more and they need more people doing things that are closer proxies to reelection campaigns? You know, what's the real underlying driver?
1: Yeah, I think there are several things uh rowing in the same direction here. And and I think you highlight two of the main ones. Um, you know, I find uh, uh Francis Lee's work on insecure majorities really compelling, right? This is the story that as um the majority control um is increasing is, is particularly unstable in the current era, right? And essentially every election, majority control is up for grabs in the institution. And because of that, um trying to gain the majority. Uh, is a first order concern always and so more resources need to be devoted towards uh, members re-election and towards trying to grow the caucus um, and so more focuses on uh, on messaging and on position taking and on things that um, sort of end up percolating to media rather than kind of the nitty-gritty of legislating and, and sort of policy staff either is either true or members believe it to be true that policy staff are not helpful um particularly to that goal and so they don't invest there um so that's on the one hand on the other hand if they're also getting signals from the um from you know key committee chairs and from leadership that also you're not actually going to get to use the policy staff that you have very much because there's just not bandwidth there's not um, an expectation that individual members are that involved in policy making, um, then they're not only are they not perceived as helpful for reelection, but they're also not able to be that helpful for legislating if they, you know, aren't included in the process there. And so, um, you know, I think it can be both of those things. And so certainly the centralization of, um, of legislating and, you know, uh, Uh, Jim Curry's like legislating in the dark talks a lot about, he talks about how much, um, you know, how often major legislation is leadership driven and, um, you know, members don't get to participate. And uh, so that certainly would also decrease the value, right? The relative value of non-legislative staff goes up and the value of policy staff also goes down in terms of sort of what there is for them to be working on potentially, I think, are, are parts of the story there.
0: Right, and if we go back to kind of the general thrust of your work, and, and you're thinking about you know this idea of expertise and, and information flow, uh, you know I guess this leads us to another area of of your focus, which is on you know think tanks, other kinds of organizations, kind of picking up the slack when it comes to this loss of expertise within Congress itself. Or uh, you know, can you walk us through that that area of your work again? What questions were you asking? What have you found?
1: Yeah, um I, I did actually just want to mention um one more thing about the the capacity aspect first, if that's all right. Um, but that that sort of leads into this, I think, which is that in addition to this disbursement record stuff, I've also done several um surveys of congressional staffers. Um and one of the key findings from those, these key descriptive findings from those, and those surveys I did with um my colleague Tim Lupira, um, one of the key findings from those is uh you know, the, the basically high rate of turnover among congressional staff, right. Um, um, Substantial percentages, and I can bring up the actual number here. Right. Okay. Um, So the average tenure of Capitol Hill staff is through about three years um, and 65% of staffers plan to leave Congress in the next five years, and perhaps even more substantially about 40, a little over 40% plan to depart by the end of the Congress in which they're currently employed. Right. So this rate of turnover um, we think is really important for understanding um sort of deficiencies in the institution, potentially, right? Uh, because they don't have, you know, offices can't build institutional memory very well. Um if staffers are leaving so often, the people who have institutional memory remember why a law was written the way it was before that now needs to be amended. They're on K Street, right? Or they're working at think tanks, or they're, you know. Um, or, you know, they're, they're sort of, that information is held outside the institution and often hired by people who have particular interests in mind, right? And there's nothing wrong with lobbying, in my view. Lobbying is an important part of the representational process, right? But lobbyists have a perspective. Their goal is not to act as neutral arbiters and neutral information providers. They want to provide information that's going to be beneficial to their clients. And if you have you know, widespread enough information sources and clients with, with you know, or, or interest groups representing all the important constituencies that should be accounted for, that system can work, right? But if it's only held by some because it's so expensive um, or whatever, then you can have sort of representational biases in that system. And so, yeah, to to just move on to your, your question, um, you know, the, the reliance on this in, on information outside the institution, to me, raises the question of okay which information do they rely on right because there's so many options there's this sort of huge menu and are they do staffers. You know, because mostly it's staffers who evaluate this information and eventually they'll pass it on to their member they write briefs or whatever they uh, you know policy notes. Memos and they brief their boss or they make recommendations to their boss or something, or they make recommendations to the staff director, or I mean to the legislative director who makes recommendations to the boss. But, you know, the, the first cull of all the possible places they could be drawing from to learn about an issue is some pretty junior staffer, right? Um, and who may not know that much about the particular issue. They're expected to be a generalist most of the time, right? And Um, That's a little bit less true in committees, right, where there's some incentive to develop real issue expertise. But uh, they, you know, so I've then focused on how do they select the information that they do, and um, done that through some surveys and survey experiments, and find uh, that sort of shared ideology between the staffer and the information source is a really important component of what information they report that they'll trust. Or use, um, even irrespective of the ideology of the member of Congress that they work for, right? So even sort of holding their member's position constant, a more conservative staffer is going to re- is going to trust a conservative source more, or a more liberal staffer is going to trust a more liberal source more. Um, and to me, that also sort of raises some representational questions about the role of of you know um, unelected. Uh, uh, staffers in, in shaping these kind of outcomes. They're not responsible to constituents in quite the same way that um, a member is. Although I, I suspect, although it's harder to prove um, that those kind of biases, if we want to call them that, in information source selection is more the result of an unconscious process than a um, a sort of intentional agency slack, like I can get away with introducing more more conservative or liberal content than my boss would like because I I know more than them or something they won't notice. I think it's more like people tend to trust things that they see as more aligned with themselves and they want to use information that they trust.
0: For the, for, for the information sources when you were doing your survey, I mean, are they all, are all the information sources ideologically uh, aligned or are there any is there a third category of not ideologically aligned source that might be trustworthy?
1: Um, so the interesting, most interesting results I have here are about reliance on sources like the Congressional Budget Office, the Congressional Research Service, and the Government Accountability Office, sort of these internal knowledge institutions. Um, and while there is some, there are some partisan differences or ideological differences in how those sources are evaluated they are rated extremely highly, very trustworthy by basically everybody. Um, You know, Republican staffers who are particularly conservative or sort of more extreme rate that do rate them less highly. There's some sort of, there is a difference there, but they're less highly is still pretty darn high, right? So like we see even among these sort of very um, credible sort of Intentionally nonpartisan, um, you know, uh, uh, long-established institutions, there is some, you know, ideological or partisan uh, shaping of or relationship between that and and levels of trust and use. Um, but that's from a super high baseline. Whereas if we look at like comparison between a right-of-center think tank and a left-of-center think tank, right, partisans have very different baselines on how they feel about those instit- like you know organizations like that and so i think for me that's mostly a hopeful result um that you know we can't totally there's nothing that's totally apolitical right um but uh you know if, if it were up to me and maybe this is something we'll, we'll get to but if it were up to me and i wanted to reform congress i would just like triple the size of the crs i just like give a lot more resources to this specific because as a share of the legislative budget it's quite small Right, but like it's one of the few things that I heard in interviews from both Republican and Democratic staffers well the first thing i'll do is ask the CRS and if the CRS has an answer to this question then I sort of know all right that's the answer. Right, and if there's something that both Republicans and Democrats can look at and be like all right that's the answer we're starting from common ground. Now we can argue about normatively what we should do about it right, we may have different policy priorities or preferences about the right mechanism to solve this problem, whether it's more market-based or more, you know, whatever, right? That's the kind of disagreement that the institution is intended to solve, or at least intended to work through, right? That's productive policy disagreement. But starting from a shared set of facts, I think is extremely important and really hard these days. And so if there's an organization that can mostly provide a shared set of facts and people actually agree to it, like the CRS, I think that's a great buy in my opinion
0: so it's interesting that the trust is still that well that's good news they still have trust in their internal um agencies or, or whatever you call them the you know the crs uh, cbo etc that's that's great what about in terms of the external world of think tanks are are they all perceived as being on one side or another and low trust from one side or low trust from the other or are there external bodies that also have that kind of trust or at least neutral ground
1: there the results for external bodies are not very promising um i've spent more time looking at prompts in which i asked generic categories of organizations than asking for specific names of organizations although i also have done work with some specific names of organizations on these surveys um and you know there are certainly organizations that are perceived as more or less credible, right? Um, You know, Heritage Foundation and the Center for American Progress are both sort of widely understood by basically everybody as being aligned with one party or the other, and the out party doesn't view them as very credible. Um, When you look at a place like Brookings, or R Street, or even AEI, out party, the out party views them as a little bit more credible than, um, you know, than, than they view the ones that are the most explicitly kind of partisan aligned. But there still is definitely a difference in um, in between parties in, in how they're viewed. Um, when we look at organizations that are not sort of these marquee think tanks, um, but are uh, you know, if we look at like how much are university researchers trusted as a category, there's a pretty big party difference. Um, when we look at among political elites more generally, so this is not just congressional staffers, although they're part of the sample, but I interviewed a more broad group of political or surveyed a more broad group of political elites. So that includes lobbyists, bureaucrats, state and local government officials, um, folks who work at think tanks, things like that, agency or association leaders, things like that. Um, I find pretty big partisan differences in how, in fact, what was surprising to me, um, partisan differences in how much an organization like uh, the National Academies of Science and Medicine or the American Association for the Advancement of Science were trusted. Um, There was a bigger difference for the American Association for the Advancement of Science than for the National Academies, Um, but, there was a substantial partisan difference there and I I sort of thought going in, um, you know, I basically asked how trustworthy is this as a source for policy information, policy relevant information or something. I don't remember the exact wording off the top of my head, um, but there was a large difference there um, and, and I viewed that as, you know, a neutral scientific source. Um, so.
0: Interesting. And is does it related to the concept that some are giving advice and you know policy-related recommendations, and others are not? So the internal bodies, you know, they have very CRS can't give, um, you know, they can't come down one way or another, right? And the, uh, you know, the the budget office is coming up with a number, not really a recommendation. You know, you know their their deliverables aren't directly related to advocacy, whereas these external bodies often are. Is that the key difference or is it is it more just about who's there? You know,
1: that's not a, a difference that I've been able to um, operationalize in, in these studies. Right. Um, because they co-vary pretty closely, right? Like there are very few external organizations, as you point out that. I mean, I guess maybe Pew would be a relevant source here. Pew tries pretty hard to not take a position, they, a fact tank is you know, how they brand themselves. And so that might be a counterfactual here that we could think about. Um, but, or a certain alternative that we could think about, but I I like that distinction that you highlighted. And I, I think it's an important one, right? It, it certainly seems plausible to me that that's a big part of how an organization is able to maintain some credibility. Now, certainly the CBO or the CRS, um, you know, I, I mean, we can think of, of high profile examples recently, you know, or not that recently <laughs> anymore, I guess, but, you know, with attempts to repeal the ACA where, uh cbo projections were were you know very much more favorable to one side than another and and there was some sort of partisan backlash you know differential partisan backlash on some of their projections so while they're not engaged in advocacy or or you know stating a um making a recommendation um you do see certainly sometimes that one party views what they've said as much more favorable to them or much more favorable to um uh to their opponents and and that causes some friction no doubt um but that i think is the ex- my impression is that 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 kind of thing is the exception for you know cbo like we don't see cbo scoring get politicized very often it doesn't make it into the news cycle very much um you know I- at least in relative terms or if we do i've missed it
0: <laughs> so let's talk then more about what the function of these think tanks are and how they influence the, the, the process and what function they're providing in your, in your analysis.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the, th- the challenges in this area of research is that I think it's really hard to actually measure directly what they do, right? Every one of these think tanks, I assume, um, you know, puts together big packets of information for their major donors and for their boards where they they tout their impact right where they say our reports were you know mentioned in these congressional hearings and our um, our uh, experts were witnesses in these various places and look at all these high profile media hits that we got right they have all the clips of all the things they've done in a given year, and, and that's really important to them in terms of demonstrating impact, right? I assume that that happens everywhere, and you know that's part of how this kind of world works. Now, I think it's really hard to tell. I mean, a, if I could have everyone's clips, that would be great because that would be a really fun project. Because it's hard to gather all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, you can look in one source. Oh, I can find them in congressional hearings because I have access to congressional hearings. But, um, but even so, even if we had that universe um it's really hard to know if members are you know being if they, if they're just so they, they know what they need they know what they want they would find it somewhere this is just a need that's being perfectly fulfilled by these organizations right and no actual collective choice stuff changes really or if you know, the constraints on what is available and where it's coming from lead them to select evidence or policies that maybe are a little bit out of line with what they would optimally select and that shifts outcomes in one way or another, right? We can't sort of know if, um, you know, organizations are just strategically anticipating exactly what members want and they create it, and there it is. And then the taxpayers just getting a great deal, right? If that's all that's happening, then taxpayers aren't paying for all of the, the infrastructure for policy creation. Some rich donors are. And okay, cool. But alternately, you know, if the things that are produced are only a subset of the possible things that could be produced and we only end up having evidence to support some policy alternatives or the, the most, you know, compelling and in-depth and you know detailed subsidies exist for some policies where there's someone willing to fund their creation and not for other possible policy alternatives because there's no constituency with enough resources to fund that Um, and so members aren't choosing from a full range of options or selecting what they think their constituents want they're selecting a constrained set that tends to favor certain interests that can fund the creation of those things then that strikes me as much more Um, of a problem for sort of democracy or for representation, but it's super hard to know which of those is the case. Um, And I don't have a good answer except that I find it hard to imagine that the full range of options is equally represented um, because of things that we know about um, the processes for organizational, um, you know, uh, origin, the origins and maintenance of organizations, right? Collective action problems are hard to solve, and um, maintaining organizations uh, is difficult and requires ongoing streams of funding. Um, and like homeless people, don't have a lot of money. And so, is there an underinvestment in uh, you know white papers about solutions to the to home the problems of the unhoused? I guess there is because there's just less interest in that by the people who have money to fund the generation of these sorts of policy things. But I don't know for sure. Right. Um and so then it also becomes not just about sort of the parochial individual interests of the funders um or of the, the organized interest groups or whatever, but also um you know then then you get into kind of ideological discrepancies.
0: Um, well and also you know I think you bring up a good point about the if you think of the landscape of information flowing into congress one of the most important one of course is going to be votes right so anyone who can motivate votes is going to be listened to um and then there's there's this layer then of money who has enough money to create information products that are going to support congress you know you can man- you can imagine a few other kind of uh inputs into that process you know like for instance you know there could be people with no votes uh very few votes and lots of money but they don't want anything they don't have any agenda right uh it's only the people with an agenda that are there's a distortion towards people who have an agenda uh yeah. in the work products right you don't get a huge um flow of money into to to, to for to stop change you know for things that don't require change right uh, people are going to put money in if they if they want change Uh so there's yeah. another kind of element there i'm sure there's a there's a there's some kind of graphic we could make you know to, to demonstrate all these forces but i'm curious when you think about these think tanks because you know on the one side it's easy to imagine that they have an influence or whatever but on the other side as someone who started one uh, and observed them it's also very plausible to think that they have no impact whatsoever and all of the work that they're doing is uh is, is trumped up in those annual reports that they're sending to their, to their donors and uh, the real world impact is zero. So I'm curious when you think about what they're doing and you've talked to the staffers and in their interactions, like what exactly is happening? You know, what are they coming in, are they giving charts, are they giving graphs, are they writing the legislation? Are they, you know, actually writing out the legal language of the bill? Like what's the range of activities that, that or I would call them deliverables that they're giving mm-hmm. to Congress uh, and how would they actually be used in the real real world of policy making?
1: Sure. I think it's a little bit of all of those things that they're doing.
0: Um, but
1: I also think a lot of it is about uh, is about agenda setting, right? Or like, I mean, another thing that they they do, they also do is that they sort of act as, you know, governments in waiting often, right? Like when a new administration takes over, they'll often hire a bunch of people who have been at the co-partisan think tank, major co-partisan think tank, sort of cooling their heels for the next time around. And they've been generating policy in the, you our know, or, or policy options in the um, intervening years. But you know that's true for the sort of high flyers of think tanks. You know, That's true at your heritages and your caps, and sometimes at your Brookings, your Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, whatever, right? There are hundreds, thousands of interest groups um, hundreds of think tanks of varying size. Um, but, you know, sometimes, you know, many of them have pretty niche interests and they develop uh, relationships with a handful of legislators or, you know, uh, regulators who um, are bureaucrats that work in a specific space and and kind of can be influential that way. Um, you know, I mean, just from my own personal experience when I was at Sunlight, um, the Sunlight Foundation uh, developers and there were a couple of lobbyists who worked there, or folks who registered as lobbying as lobbyists because they interacted in that capacity enough, right? Worked really closely with the clerk of the house, right? Um, and influenced how data um sharing you know, was being done by the house and opened that up a lot, right? And so they were able to be influential in that way, but it was not the sort of more high profile, like they got a bill. Um kind of thing, although they they worked on that kind of stuff too. Um, you know, I think uh one of the things about policy change in contemporary in the contemporary US uh context is that most policy change is rare, right? The the um, predominant outcome is to continue the status quo on almost every policy issue almost all the time. Um, and you know, you only need to—if you're an advocate for a particular position—you only need to win once. And so you can be not influential a bunch of times in a row, and then successful once. And now that's the new status quo, and it's going to hang around a long time, probably. Right? There are some some rare exceptions. I mean, you know, there are some deviations from that, um, but particularly on things that um, operate sort of below the surface, right? Not the sort of most highly politicized news media kind of attention, uh, most salient issues, but lots of things that are sort of uh, happen just in, they happen in what what political scientists sometimes call policy subsystems, um, which is basically like legislators, regulators, and, you know, key stakeholders, often industry um, or interest groups. Or sometimes think tanks representing some of those interests. And they sort of work together to just kind of establish what, what's the stake, what, what's the sort of status quo in this, po- in this little area? How do things work? Right. And they provide lots of information. And that's where how often legislators or regulators will learn, hey, there's a problem here. A policy isn't working. It's because they'll get information from these kind of interest groups about, you know, what's happening. And then sometimes that gets addressed, you know, through changes in regulation or whatever. But it's about some esoteric issue about, you know, mineral management that nobody normal knows anything about and we never hear about it. Right. But those kind of changes to sort of the bureaucratic state um, or to specific little legislative language, those kind of things are happening a lot.
0: So regarding the information flow, um, I think you've also done some work as it relates to science, you know, what kind of scientific information is flowing into Congress and uh, you know, I've talked to several people in the past about, you know, science's role in, in Congress uh, and the previous OTA as a source of that information. And then it, you know, went away. And I've talked to, um, you know, the reincarnation of that concept in Congress. So can you talk about, you know, expertise, generally speaking, you know, and then how does how the science piece fit into it?
1: Yeah, so um, this relates to my, a little bit to my earlier thoughts about, the role of you know, or why i think the crs is so valuable right or the cbo the um which is that i think for effective governance um a shared understanding of the state of the world is really important i think the sort of the the where i think political disagreement i'm not someone who thinks disagreement or even partisanship or um or even in some cases uh you know polarization is necessarily bad, like, collective choice mechanisms and representational democracy, um, you know, is a mechanism for dealing with differences in preferences and coming to, to, you know, collective choice over outcomes, right. But I think, where in my ideal world, where those kind of differences happen, are differences in, in what we think in in sort of what should happen, right? What do we think the appropriate role of government is to do something? What do we think of of multiple different things that could address a problem? what What do we want, what tool do we want to use to address an issue? Not over the question of, you know, is there an issue? We can disagree about how important it is or something, but like, what are the facts on the ground? Are there, you know, is COVID airborne, right? That to me is a scientific question. Now, how do we want to the trade off we want to make between restriction and, and transmission, you know, those to me are more normative questions, but this, it's a scientific question of does this virus transmit through the air, right? And I think we need to have shared understandings of facts so that we can then have productive disagreements over responses. And so in my ideal world, I want I think you know science can provide those facts. Obviously, science is also a sort of human process. It's a, scientific understandings of things are always evolving, and when it works well, it's self-correcting as new research comes along and checks previous research. Right? I don't want to. I don't want to sort of lionize science as something that is the objective arbiter of truth all the time, um, because we're all fallible humans trying to figure stuff out but what I'd like, the way I'd like a government to work is to try to bring in the best science possible to understand what we currently know about, about the state of the world. And then we fight over, you know, then we argue over what do we do about that state of the world? What are the possible responses and how do we value trade-offs? Um, and so that's what I've been looking at, how science get, ends up getting used in policy making. I mean, and part of that process is, and then we have to respond when we learn a new things, when our understanding of the science updates we got to have that conversation again all right now the state of the world is different than we thought it was we got to re- reevaluate our trade-offs um the challenge with,
0: the challenge with science you know and i'm a big carl uh, popper fan uh, of the philosophy of science and falsification mm-hmm. you know the challenge is that maybe you can get at some facts um the problem is that all the theories uh that are you know they're all falsifiable at the end of the day and uh, there's there's different theories and um they have more or less evidence against them and so that 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 kind of gap is is exploited in the political process mm-hmm. right? yeah
1: and and i mean they should be falsifiable right you know because i think if something is unfalsifiable um you know if there's no way you could theoretically falsify it then i don't know how to believe it Right, it needs to be possible to falsify that we haven't done it you tried and we can't we can't find evidence, you know. or sufficient evidence now obviously you know full scientific consensus doesn't there are many, many things on which it doesn't exist, but I think we have to look at the preponderance of evidence, and I think. Mostly, I want people who are really knowledgeable about that domain to be involved in the process of evaluating the preponderance of the evidence, because it involves making trade offs about you know, sort of epistemological concerns in how research was conducted that takes specialized training to understand. And so I want people who have those skills to work in Congress, right? I want people who understand research methods to be looking at some studies and saying, this is a better study, like these studies disagree, but this one is fundamentally flawed in a variety of ways. Right? And I sort of just want a domain expert doing that, not someone with strong vested political interests in one goal, or the or, you know what one leans to, or the other, because we know motivated reasoning is a really strong um, human cognitive force. Now, nobody has no ideological or political or preferences, right? We can't have a kind of science evaluator automaton that you know. But if we have multiple people and they have expertise, you know, we hope we get something there. But um, but you're right to point out that you know it's certainly not as cut and dry as like the science says this. So, but even, you know, in all of the COVID stuff, the like follow the science isn't a thing that really makes sense to me as a thing to say, right? Like, I think we can be very clear. There are some very clear things that science tells us about the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, but it science does not tell us what our policy response to that should be policy response involves social normative questions about how we value trade-offs, right? Between various things. And, and some of them are policy questions about, some policies may not require the same trade-offs, right? Like, it's not always just about, but like, those are normative and policy questions, but like whether COVID is airborne is a science question. Um, you know, and and whether masks help prevent that transmission is a science question whether we want to require people to wear masks to limit that, that's a normative question, right? It's one that some people think has a very clear answer and others don't. But like, that's a political question and where politics should exist. Although I have strong preferences there, but you know, that's the point of preferences. Um, And, but what I found in actually looking at how science gets cited, is that it's cited very differently in Congress by Republicans and Democrats. Um, much more so than I expected, you know, I, we, we see stories about, um, uh, you see sort of public, public discourse about partisan differences in science, but that's mostly in sort of public speech and messaging. Right. And there's a strong reason for, uh, for, you know, legislators or politicians to want to appeal to particular constituencies with, you know, anti-elitist rhetoric or something, right. Um, populist rhetoric and things like that. But ultimately my belief is that legislators mostly have a strong incentive to try to get policy right because they don't want unintended consequences because unintended consequences are bad. And so you want to use the best available evidence. Um, But instead we see that Democrats cite a lot more science than Republicans in committee reports or in um, who comes to, you know, what what is in committee hearing documents. um, That's true sort of regardless of the type of science. So across fields, um, it's increasing the differences increasing over time. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, they also tend to cite science that is more influential within science, kind of higher, higher citation count science.
0: Hmm. Is that because typically they want to do more things. And so they need justification to do more things, or is it? Uh, or is there some I, other reason?
1: I measure it in terms of share of documents they produce that cite science. So it's sort of normalized by the amount of policy, policy document creation, I guess, right? Like per committee report per committee hearing. Hmm. Um, so, you know, that, that addresses at least some of that kind of variation, um, but.
0: And so ultimately for this kind of expertise, you know, in Congress, would just come back to the, con- the the functioning and structure of congress itself you mentioned earlier you know how would you approach the to improve the, the situation would you you mentioned before you triple the the budget of the crs you know would you you know make more individual legislators have more uh legislative staff you know would you close you know put up walls around congress so the think tanks couldn't get in you know what would you do to Given that you've studied this information question for a while, how would you change the flow of information and the flow of resources to make a better outcome?
1: Yeah, so I don't want to put up walls so that think tanks or interest groups or lobbyists can't get in. Um, What I want is that when they're there, there's less of an information asymmetry, right? I want the the person or people um, selecting from a variety of information sources to rely on to be as informed as possible or as as experienced and expert as possible so that they can make relative evaluations across those sources. Um, So that means, you know, staff retention is really important. Um, That probably means paying staffers a lot more because, you know, and and politically, it's not always popular to talk about paying more for government. But I think, um, you know, any one of those people can basically leave and immediately double their salary. Um, or more. Uh, I think, you know, there's some expectation that public service doesn't pay quite, you don't go into public service to like, get rich. Uh, And so I think most people and staffers that I've talked to, most folks are sort of comfortable with the idea that they're doing a thing that they care more about that feels important to them, they sort of know they're not going to make as much money. But the cost for doing that shouldn't be as high, right, maybe make 20 or 30% less, not, you know, half, or a third of what you would make outside, right? Like that difference needs to be greater or there needs to be other quality of life benefits because they also work really long hours typically. Um, and so, and DC is one of the most expensive cities in the country. So like altogether, it just makes it, it's very hard if you're a congressional staffer to be like, and now I'm 35 and I wanna have a family. And you're like, can't do it. Gotta go get a different job, right? Like I would be a senior staffer in Congress um, in most offices. And I'm like a very junior academic because of the pathologies of academia, which is like a separate problem, but there are sort of the opposite ends of that um, kind of human capital question. Um, so I think you really want to invest in retaining staff. I think you really want to invest in these sort of nonpartisan information um, institutions like the CRS, I think. You know, bringing back the OTA would be really important and a great idea. I love, um, you know, organizations that run fellowships where they place domain experts in Congress um, as fellows. I think that's really great. Lots of scientific societies and things do this. Um, you know, I think those could probably be improved in various ways. Um, you know, mostly it's at it's at. The sort of matching process, my understanding, is sort of at the discretion of the member, and maybe they'll take one, and maybe they won't. And you know, if you can't force someone to take a staffer that they don't want, but I think you end up seeing uh, partisan differences in who takes fellows. Um, I know that you know my impression is that um, some of for some of these societies it can be a little harder to get um, Republican members of that of the House specifically to take fellows than Democrats. Um, you know, I'm not sure how much that generalizes, but uh, a way I, I, want, I want those resources to be as widely distributed as possible in the institution. I don't want it to be a partisan question. I don't want it to be uh, um, an ideological question, right? I want everybody to have access to someone who can be like, this study selects on the dependent variable and you can't believe it. <laughs> um, maybe that's, you know, too idealistic. But I think, uh, or you know, I want staff to be trained in some of these things a little bit. I don't know. I think general, I think like general curriculum expectations in the United States should include statistics training. Um, I think it's more probably more important to learn statistics than it is to learn calculus. Um, but I don't know. That's my soapbox about all that. I guess. Um, I think we we tolerate a level of innumeracy that we certainly wouldn't we don't tolerate for um, uh, and wouldn't tolerate for sort of other work relevant skills. Um, and that's a big problem. I don't know how to solve that. Right? That's that's way beyond my scope. And if I say too much more on it, I'm sure I'll put my foot in my mouth. But I think numeracy is really important and underinvested in generally.
0: All right, well, why don't we move on now to uh, uh, common questions that I ask all of our guests, if you're sure. ready for the next phase. Yeah. All right, so these are a little bit different. So I guess, you know, you, you mentioned it earlier when you were talking about, you know, the different groups having access. But the question here is, what do you think congressional representation should mean? Uh,
1: it's a hard question. Because I'm not sure that I know what I believe here. Um, I'm torn between between how much I believe in sort of uh kind of direct representation of constituent interests, sort of acting as a proxy for constituents, versus a little bit more of a Burkean like stewardship model. Um, I think if we want legislators to act purely as representatives of their constituents and only their constituents, just voting their constituents' priorities, then our institutions need to be more representative. Um, right? I think like the fact that we don't have proportional representation, I think if you, if you want direct representation of the people who voted for a person, and that's how they're going to vote, that's how that legislator is going to vote in Congress, then I think you need to have a proportional representation system. Because otherwise, the the imbalances between whose interests are getting represented in Congress is too large. Um, you know, in, in an ideal world, a more stewardship model would allow a person to say, well, okay, but like, for the whole country, this other thing is better. I don't know if in practice how much anybody does that. I think mostly people think their own policy priorities or their own party priorities are what's best for the country or at least what should happen anyway. Um, but, like, a purely representational system should have a more representational institution, in my view.
0: And how about the future? You know, you, the direct democracy concept, you know, the, the delegate model or whatever um, would preclude the future being important for a, a person's representation, right, because you're just representing the people who exist today and who may or may not be voting, et cetera, or, or may, may be in my constituency. Whereas future generations, you know, they'd only be embodied in the interests of the current constituents, um, versus a more Burkean model where you're thinking, you know, your constituents are not just the people who live today, but all the people of the future. They're also your constituents. So where do you come down on that question? Is it you, you represent, you know, the seven hundred thousand or the millions in your district, or do you represent all the future generations as well?
1: I want everyone to be thinking about the future. Um... It's not clear to me that any of our institutions are set up so that they would. Um, it's not clear to me how you would design a system in which they would, right? I mean, sort of a question of what's the individual legislator's discount rate? What's the discount rate of the voters who vote for them? I mean, like we we discount across time and space as humans, and and we know it, and it's hard to solve. And I'm not. It's it's not obvious to me. I mean, if it was obvious to me, I, I'd be a lot smarter um, about how we can fix that with institutional design. You know, So I think in my ideal world, I want legislators to all be doing that. I'm not sure that our, I don't think our current le- legislative institutions encourage them to do that. I also don't think a more proportional representation system would particularly encourage them to do that either. I think it's maybe orthogonal to the extent to which they do that.
0: All right, next question is how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? And by that, obviously I mean, you know, DC versus the home, you know, the district, you know, legislation versus oversight. How much would you allow them time would you allow campaigning, etc.?
1: Um yeah, I'd love to limit the the um length of the campaign to you know, uh, I'm I'm not a comparativist. I don't know things about Europe. Every time I try to say something about Europe, I'm probably going to be wrong. My impression is there are lots of European countries. I'm going to say this as vaguely as possible so that I don't say anything incorrect. A lot of European countries have like a defined campaign window. It's pretty short. Starts then there's the election. If we could do that, I think that would be great because I think it detracts a lot from being productive legislators. I don't know how that'd be possible within the context of, um, you know, uh, First Amendment protections about you know political spending and things like that right um so i think things would be better if that was true i don't know how to get there or if if it's doable um i want legislators to spend more time in dc if they're doing anything i mean right now no one they frequently aren't doing things right um because of gridlock and and you know um I think the amount of time that, that legislators have to spend um, you know, in the call room, you know, getting campaign finance, you know, getting funding um is sort of ridiculous. I wish that weren't the case. It's another thing that I don't know, you know, how we get to an equilibrium where that's not true, given um the the current um laws about how elections are funded. Um I would like Congress to do a lot more oversight. I think Congress has ceded far too much authority to the executive branch. Um, I think, uh, and to the judiciary, right? I think um, Congress should not be as tolerant of the judiciary just like striking down laws. Um, I'm sort of. <sighs> Like, I think, I think, I don't think the judiciary, or rather I don't think the judiciary should be as involved as it has been some lately in adjudications between um sort of separate separation of powers adjudications, right? I think the appropriate redress for separation of powers questions is for Congress to oversee the executive, right? Like, like if Congress doesn't like what the president is doing, Congress needs to pass a law or con- to constrain the executive, or Congress needs to, um, you know, Uh, bring folks in for hearings. I think Congress should use its contempt powers. I think Congress is an institution with lots of constitutional authority, and it uses very little of that constitutional authority um, these days, right? I'm a believer that the constitution is the first branch. um, And that has not been true um, for quite some time now.
0: So would you have them move back to DC since you saw the 94 split and the trend afterwards?
1: would i have would i have legislators spend more time in dc
0: live in dc bring the families back
1: um i think i would i mean it's hard right i i do think that uh you know i i think it makes sense for members of congress to maintain two full residences um they're not paid enough to do that um you know i think they should spend i think we have some long recesses. They should go back and spend long recesses in the district, meeting with constituents. There are lots of members, you know, who there are many members who go back and are deeply involved with their constituents and do lots of constituent service. Right? It's a whole. It's it's a very effective strategy. Is is sort of the constituent service um, route to reelection and to popularity. Right? It's part of how back some years ago, Michelle Bachman was able to stay a member of Congress for as long as she did, despite being far more conservative than um, her district was in expectation was my impression was that she was very invested in in constituent service. Right. So I think that's really important. Um, But there are other members who go back and sort of avoid constituents and don't engage nearly as much. And I think that should be politically costly. I think constituency engagement is important, Um, but I think that can happen have offices there that deal with routine constituent service needs. And then the member during recess spends big chunks of time there out in the community, and then they go. I think, sort of this like three days, three days, three days, three days, thing. Like I think they should spend blocks of dedicated productive time in each place.
0: All right. So, um, the- but I
1: I do want to caveat all of that by saying I haven't spent a lot of time studying the allocation of members' time across um you know across districts and um, and and. D.C. nor nor I think am I up to date on what scholarship there might say, so I could be wrong.
0: So the next question is about debate, deliberation, dialogue uh, within Congress. How do you think that should happen? Should it be on the floor? Should it be in uh, committees? Should it be in back rooms? You You know, should it be transparent? Should it be private? How do you see the evolution of this over time? Where do you think it should go?
1: I think what is currently called debate. Is not doing anyone any good, um, right? I, I certainly, I mean, I'm generally a believer in transparency. In most cases, I don't think everything should happen in like a backroom deal. But mostly, what we see on the floor is not debate as much as it is sort of point scoring sound bites that talk past each other, right? I, I don't, I don't think anyone's mind is changed through. Certainly, I don't think legislators' minds are changed. I don't think they're actually like debating things um I think they're signaling to constituencies that they need to to say I'm doing the work that you care about here right I'm I'm saying your messages not theirs I'm on your team not theirs I think it's position taking um not legislating and position taking is an important part of legislators or of of members re-election strategy certainly but I don't think it does as much good in terms of um passing legislation and I think even if we believe in you know if if I think regardless of your belief about the size and scope of government, over which I think there's legitimate, uh, uh, you know, a wide swath of legitimate disagreement, Congress needs to legislate, even if to take small, tailor legislation and adapt it to new challenges, or, you know, um, uh, repeal things that don't work, fix things that do, like, they just need to be able to do things. And the fact that they're not means that's all happening in the bureaucracy, that's all happening in the executive through unelected folks, or it's happening through the courts. And I think that's bad. I think it should happen in the institution. I mostly think that should mean that it's easier to pass laws. I think there are too many veto players, um, too many points at which legislation can be stopped. Um, you know, I, I think uh, for example, the filibuster is not good. Um, you know, one of the defenses of the filibuster is that it encourages debate or preserves debate, which preserve which which you know, um uh then encourages bipartisanship. And I just think there's no empirical evidence for the notion that you actually get more bipartisanship because of the filibuster. And and the widespread use of not even a talking filibuster, but essentially a secret filibuster um that imposes no costs on the major on the minority um is a relatively new um invention, a new uh, in Congress. And so the sort of appeals to the tradition of the institution and the institutional rules um, to me don't have a lot of merit because the, the, the filibuster was never used this way historically and was not until um, the last few decades really. Um, and Congress has amended its rules many times.
0: That's the next question is uh, what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years?
1: In fifty years, pay staffers more, pay members more, um, you know, invest in in knowledge institutions, um, incentivize retention. Um, you know, if I'm, if we're if if we're shooting for the moon here, I would say proportional representation. I would say um, uh, abolish the Senate. Um, <laughs> Uh, I would say minor
0: minor tweaks to the system. Yeah,
1: Yeah, minor tweaks, get rid of the Senate, um, get rid of, yeah, I I think, um, you know, first past the post single member districts are bad. Um, yeah, those are my minor tweaks.
0: (laughs) All right. Next one is what book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform?
1: Um, my thinking has been, you know, I already mentioned lobbying as legislative subsidy, but that was really foundational for me. Um, I read that before I became a political scientist, before I even worked at Sunlight, I actually mentioned it in my um, I was working with Lee Drutman hired me at at Sunlight. Um, and in my interview with him when I was interviewing for my position um, to be his research assistant, basically is what I started out as. Uh he asked me how I thought about lobbying. Like, what do you, how do you think lobbying works? Um, and I was like, oh, well, this is paper lobbying as legislative subsidy, and I think that's when he decided to hire me. Um, so, you know, that's that's uh, really up there. Um, you know, a couple of other things that I've mentioned already, Francis Lee's work um, on insecure majorities. Uh, Lee Drummond's work more generally, I mean, he's been a mentor of mine, I mean, obviously, since Time at Sunlight. And so, you know, he thinks about congressional reform a lot, conversations with him about reform, certainly. Um, Rick Hall's book.
0: Uh, um, yeah, I, you know, I guess those those are some things. <laughs> well, the last question is just about your own work and where it's going in the future. What what plans do you have? Is it is it more of the science stuff? Is it the capacity of any other projects in the works? And uh, what's the long run plan?
1: Um, it's a lot of it is science stuff right now. Um, I'm so I'm at the work at the Center for Science of Science and Innovation, and sort of my pitch when I started talking to them and and when we found mutual interests on was you know they're really into um, uh, sort of learning using scientific methods to understand the production of science, and sort of talking to them was like if we care about science we should care about both how it's used in policymaking and how policy affects the production of science itself, right? Um, And they were very excited about that and had some relevant data that we could bring to bear on those questions. And so I have sort of a a research portfolio there that is a lot about the intersection of politics and science. So both through funding mechanisms and through and then use um, and sort of also individual scientists' behavior and how that can be motivated by political forces and things like that. I also have a book project um, on with uh, uh, Jesse Crossan and Jeff Lorenz about um, interest group polarization. Um, in the sort of last 50 years or so, we look at the development. we, sort of, we have a paper in which we revealed uh, we found that the sort of distribution of interest groups preferences are quite ideologically polarized. Um, and our question was sort of, how did that come to be? have interest groups been a polarizing force in American politics or have they been polarized by the preferences of other elites Um, and we sort of use uh, you know a couple hundred thousand instances of position taking by interest groups on uh, pieces of legislation to estimate dynamic scores of their preferences over time and we can look at sort of which interest groups have been polarizing and why um, and Uh, you know, our our sort of theoretical story there is that um, that sort of partisan members condition access to interest groups on them, on their demonstrating that they are sort of part of the team, right? That they have to sort of signal in group membership, you know, we're your ally and we're not the other party's ally. Um, And then members will sort of grant them access. And so as majorities have become insecure, Legislators do this kind of gatekeeping, and that's caused interest groups to then polarize. The sort of motivating question is like, why do you see, you know, the NRA taking a position a position on abortion or something, right? If if the NRA is a special interest group, why do they take positions on issues outside their special interest, right? Or we see, you know, left to center groups do this all the time as well. This is not a, a unique to the NRA. That's just the salient example that came to mind, but but we have a lot of examples of that, and the story is like, why is that happening? That goes against predominant theories of sort of particularistic access-oriented groups. So that's another thing I'm working on.
0: Awesome. It well, sounds like you've got your plate full. So uh, Xander, thank you so full much full for time. taking. Sorry.
1: <laughs> a little too full sometimes. I gotta finish some projects, not just start them.
0: And we've all got the same problem. Um, (laughs) Awesome, well Xander, thank you so much for taking time. It's been a pleasure and uh, I look forward to the future work.
1: Yeah, that was really fun.